Hold it like so. Nice and easy. Now compress your lips to create your embouchure. Enough for the tip of your little finger. And blow into the hole gently. Like so. Watch me. I'll do the fingering. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Popcorn Digest, the podcast about cinema and all it has to offer. I'm your host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time goo-licker, Andrew Raphael. To Monte Carlo. And today we're venturing out into the dark to ask, in space, can anyone hear you complain? That's right, we're reviewing Alien Covenant, but is this violent creature feature simply misunderstood or should we blast this fucker out of an airlock? Find out. After the trailer. You've all sacrificed so much to be here and be a part of this thing we're doing. This crew is made up of couples. It's the first ever large-scale colonization mission. And everyone back on Earth is really grateful for your hard work and your courage. We're making history here. This is wheat. What are the odds of finding human vegetation this far from Earth? Who planted it? You hear that? What? Nothing. No birds. No animals. Nothing. What happened here? If you saw Prometheus but thought it needed double the amount of gay robots, then this might be the film for you. From the geriatric mind of Ridley Scott comes Alien Covenant, a film that sees yet another assorted group of cannon fodder characters encounter a volatile, parasitic race on a distant alien world. Soon our characters encounter Michael Fassbender's psychotic synthetic and discover that perhaps the alien is the least of their concerns. Blood, guts and robotic fingering ensues. But whatever you do Andy, don't whistle or I'll come. (laughs) (laughs) okay so andy i already know from experience this isn't your first time tangling with the beast but how do you feel about alien covenant how was it watching it this time for the episode yeah because i hadn't seen it since the cinema i think following our prometheus episode that we recorded at the time yeah we went to see it i think in imax initially and then i think i saw it a second time but i can't remember who with and that was it and then i think i picked up the blu-ray about a year and a half ago, but didn't actually watch it. So this is the first time watching it at home. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, based on my feelings from it at the cinema, they haven't actually changed very much. Yeah. But I think as we go into how the film is, I I don't think that's very surprising. Yeah. Because I think my general feeling is that in a basic filmmaking level, the film is 
quite considerably more competent than its predecessor. Yeah. But I find it to be slightly derivative, actually, no, heavily derivative in areas. And it feels smaller, lower key. Yeah. And just less ambitious than its predecessor. Yeah. Uh, for all its faults, Prometheus had a lot of ambition. It failed to reach, you know, to reach its potential, but you could tell that there was a lot of things buzzing around that. Whereas I feel like with Covenant, they've been um, considerably more conservative and it, yeah. and it shows. I will agree with you that it certainly feels a lot more conservative and smaller. Mm. It, it feels more like a bottle episode, let's yeah, say. Yeah. But I do think that that may be a conscious effort on the filmmaker's behalf, considering... Well, I mean, we'll go into this shortly, but the reaction yeah, yeah. to some of the elements in Prometheus. Oh, definitely. I think in audience terms as well. I actually think that that may have soured a few people, but I will go into that very shortly. So just in terms of my reaction to Alien Covenant as well and what my history is with this film, obviously we did our Prometheus episode and then a few short weeks later we saw Alien Covenant. And I also saw it twice at the cinema. And then I barely watched it at all at home. I think I watched it once when, when my wife and this is my second watch through. So weirdly enough, it's one of those films that I haven't revisited as much. But when I revisited it last night, I, as you mentioned, my feelings are exactly the same as when I first saw it. But I think they're about a bit more on the positive side. Mm -hmm. Just because there's a certain character that I respond to in these films that I think makes the films. Yeah, yeah. I'm able to forgive a lot more because of the character and the work with that character. But I actually think that there are still some heady ideas at play, but they're more on a character level and what he's dealing with there, rather than yeah. world building and mm. sending it off in that direction. I think we're going to be on similar lines in regards to this, maybe once more just yeah. separate sides of the fence. Yeah. I mean, my reaction to the film is definitely more positive than Prometheus. Yeah. And I think it's just because it gets its basic film competencies more in a line. It's just a little bit more confident with what it's doing, I think. Yeah. But that doesn't mean to say that what it's doing is particularly groundbreaking in any way. Yeah. I think that's maybe an issue that we'll we'll go into a little bit later. But I would say on a basic, you know, viewing level, mm -hmm. it's a stronger film than Prometheus in quite a lot of different ways. Just before we continue, I think it's best that we go through some information as to the context of the film, as to when it was made, how it got made, what the history is behind the film. I've written up a little timeline here of just plot points of, a, of beats for us to go through. Mm -hmm. And I think it reveals a lot about where this film was stuck for quite some time. Yeah. We've spoken about Prometheus. It was released in 2012 to a somewhat mixed reception in terms of the audience reception but it made money for fox it was like 400 million on a 120 million budget or something like that so there was a push from fox to make a sequel but also they didn't quite know what they wanted that sequel to be because the fan base was split in so many different directions i mean i remember one of the things that it, that prometheus got a lot of criticism for was that it didn't really feel like an alien film mm. it was a lot more star trek than it was alien and I, I get that, I get that, I, I, th I yeah. think I can see that in that film. So there was a conscious effort to make the sequel in a lot more of an alien mold. The sequel was originally meant to follow immediately, like production was a uh, originally meant to begin straight away on the sequel to Prometheus. At one point, they were even considering filming Prometheus back-to-back -back with its sequel. Mm. I remember that's something that Ridley Scott pushed forward, but Fox pulled back on. 
and for one reason or another, Alien Covenant, it kind of entered a development hell for a few years. Yeah. I do remember like reading reports that they were just like going through script writers and script writers. Like this wasn't actually reported the names that were involved. You can see there's four names involved on the writing of the film. But from what I understand, they were just taking speculative scripts from scriptwriter after scriptwriter just looking for that thing that suddenly sparked with them yeah and it was known that fox were having some difficulty really nailing down what they wanted from a sequel i don't actually think the issue was with ridley scott because i think ridley <laughs> scott's like very firm in his idea of what he wants an alien film to be it's just that fox have got to fit their idea of it as well like he's got to find that mix of the two and i think you can see that with alien covenant it feels like one of those type of films Part of it feels like Ridley Scott doing his thing, and part of it feels like these are some beats that we've got to hit as well. I remember, is it Jack Paglin? Yeah, yeah. Was a writer that was brought on board, and that was like way back in 2013 or 2014. Yeah, June 2013 I've got written down here. That he actually handed in his draft. And his only previous film was The Remarkable Transcendence. <laughs> I have a, a, an opinion about that film that I've never seen, but I think it really uh, strangled the career of one of our great cinematographers. Oh, totally. I've not seen him do anything since. No, he works in TV now as a director, but yeah, it feels like such a sorry end for what was turning out to be one of cinema's greatest and most <sighs> promising cinematographers. I'm going to say it's a Monsters University situation where somebody has an ambition to be something, yeah, but in fact they're much better at doing something else. Yeah. And I think that's Wally Fisto all over. He's an excellent cinematographer, but he's an absolutely appalling director. <laughs> but I think he thinks he's on the level of Christopher Nolan, but he's... Because he's worked with him and had a long-standing relationship, but he's nowhere near. <laughs> I remembered at times when he was making films that, uh, in terms of his cinematography, I was looking forward to see a film, much in the same way that I look forward to see a film with Roger Deakins as a cinematographer. Like, I was looking yeah, forward yeah. to see the film because of his cinematography. And yeah. It's such a shame that he's left that real promising career behind. I thought he might have been the next Roger Deakins at one point, just a touch colder, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, so... Jack Paglin, he had worked on Transcendence. That's the only other film to its credit, really. He gets a story by credit on Alien Covenant. However, I do actually have some further information as well that this ties into the Alien vs. Predator Fire and Stone comic book that came out after Prometheus. So it was this like year-long Alien vs. Predator vs. the Engineers like comic book universe that Fox released. Oh, no. It's okay. It's There's some great artwork in it. The storylines are rather fodder, but... It's okay, it does its job. But I do know that halfway through the making of that graphic novel, or comic book, I should say, Fox told the, the writers of that story that they had to retract a lot of their story elements because they were coming too close to what they were doing with the films. And I do know that the element that they had to pull back was actually um, they had a character in it, a synthetic, that's infected by the black goo. Okay. And it becomes a biomechanical monster yeah and for anybody that's watching this series that's kind of knows where it's heading that, that's exactly where the yeah. series is going so they had to actually they still have the element of the android turning into a biomechanical monster but it doesn't look anything like you would expect or yeah, yeah. where you think it would be going they've clearly had to pull back and they they had to pull back for example the deacon was going to feature prominently in the neomorph and that type of thing so they had to strip all of that out and kind of retool their story so these actual comic book it, kind of goes nowhere mm. unfortunately but that's following the investigation of the prometheus on the planet lv233 i think is it 233 i think so i d forgot to look it back up <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, but that's uh, that following the investigation of that. It's weird, right? So I'm just going to go through that story. They land on the planet where the Prometheus wreckage is. And the whole place is full of, like, trees and fauna and mountains and stuff like that. Like, out of what's happened with the Prometheus and the experiment with this black goo, this jungle terrain has amassed in what is, like, years following around this planet that was once dead. And then they enter what they call a living mountain at one point, and it turns out to be what the deacon has turned into. Yeah, it gets really fucking mental. So they're essentially walking through a giant alien. (laughs) It's not the best. So Jack Paglin's on board, but they don't actually crack the script until they bring on John Logan, which is in 2015, I think he starts turning in his versions of the script, really. Yeah, because it went through Michael Green after that. It did, yes. And Michael Green, Ridley Scott had worked on Blade Runner 2049 with. Yeah. And he's actually enjoyed a rather profitable period of his career, working on films like 2049, Alien Covenant, and Logan, all in a very short space of time. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, they don't actually crack it until John Logan is brought on board. And I will say even, I read a report that because Ridley Scott and his turnover of films, you mentioned it in our Hannibal episode, he's just constantly making film after film after film. They actually, at one point, were going to bring on Wes Ball, is it? Or Wes Bell, the director of the Maze Runner series. They were going to bring him on to make the Alien film. So he had made a pitch, apparently. It was one of those things that it was mentioned in one article and then it was never mentioned again. But apparently he had been touted as being the next Alien filmmaker. And I don't know if that was just a way to kind of entice Ridley Scott back to doing making Alien his next film. Because he's always got like about 30 films in development and any <laughs> one of them could be next. Yeah. Okay, now this brings us to the big point. And I think we're going to spend a section of the podcast just talking about this for a while. But just before Alien Covenant's about to go into production, really, Neil Blomkamp releases a series of concept art for an unproduced alien film that he's thought up with Sigourney Weaver whilst making Chappie. And, <laughs> yeah, that says, that says everything. Oh, fucking hell, I hate Chappie so much. <laughs> it's such a shit film. Jesus I've, I've not seen it from when we saw it. No, I haven't either. That's once is enough. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. God, yeah, it's like a punch in the mouth. Once is enough. So, from the visionary director behind Chappie... <laughs> Behind District 9 remakes. Exactly. He's a one-trick pony. I really like yeah. Neil Blomkamp, but he really needs to do something more than what he's done. Like, District 9 is brilliant. It's great, but... Elysium is yeah. fine. It's like diminishing returns with his yeah, first three Yeah, he films. just keeps trying to make the same film. So Fox sign him up to make an Alien film, and it's going to be a film that's going to rewrite Alien 3 and Resurrection. It's actually a sequel to Aliens. If we think yeah. of what they've just done with Terminator Dark Fart, Dark Fate. <laughs> Dark Fart. I actually, I don't know why I said that. I actually <laughs> don't mind it, but that's a story for another day. But yeah, yeah. for Terminator, Brown Fate. Brown Fate. <laughs> so, yeah. It's like very much what they've done with that film is what they were going to do with the Alien series as well. What are your feelings on that, Andy? I just think it's a bad idea. Yeah. That's like fan service at its very worst yep i mean i think we've let our feelings known about aliens for quite some time Mm -hmm. i I really like the film of aliens but it's not my favorite by any means yeah and it's definitely the most heavily american version of alien yeah um which i think is why american audiences really respond to that film because it plays into you know the kind of slightly cheesy theme of family and motherhood and stuff like that it's Mm -hmm. very more very much more 
American centered film where say something that maybe is yeah it's it's flawed in its theatrical presentation but alien 3 is dealing with much darker subject matter and yeah. much more like nihilistic but i i generally think that's closer to it, what alien should be and what the first film set up that kind of nihilistic heading towards yeah a burning barn kind of feeling and that whole aids thing and yeah stuff so to try and rewrite that and about existential terror as well, like the yeah. fear of the dark out there. Yeah, and I think trying to rewrite that is just, I don't think it's serving the alien particularly well because it's suggesting that everything's okay and we can beat this, but that's not the theme of the piece. It's a metaphor for much darker things. It's not a gung-ho action adventure. No. You know, as much as some people would like to think it is, it's, it's not really. Uh, and again, even if it was half decent it's only ever going to look like it's just doing aliens again exactly yeah like even with the type of director that they've brought on who at one point was billed as being the next james cameron it's just chasing aliens to me and i think rewriting particularly alien 3 out of the canon as well is such Mm. a poor move because no matter your feelings about the actual bulk of the film it still gives ripley an ending that feels fitting for her character and her relationship with the Xenomorph as well. Like That feels like yeah. the send-off her character deserves. Rather than, I don't know, I, I've always said what I like about the Alien series films is that each one, it feels like a left turn when everybody's expecting a right turn. Yeah. Even straight up to Resurrection, for all of its faults, Resurrection still has that feeling as well. It could go one way, but it goes into yeah. this like European-French cinema type of direction instead. Yeah. Yeah, for all its faults, it still has that, and I, and I appreciate that about it. I think just rewriting it so that they can do something that's safer is a betrayal of what the Alien series has always been about. And even if we take it to these films, which we'll discuss later, I do think Alien Covenant has elements that are safer, but I also think it has elements that are wilder as well and and weirder for the series. Yeah, yeah. One particularly as well that has disrupted the fan base immeasurably. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm sure we'll discuss that later. But yeah, I think it was a bad idea. I was happy when it fell apart. For some reason, Ridley Scott catches the flack for why this film fell apart. But in an interview, I I saw him. He had no idea why it didn't come together. I think Fox actually just lost their faith in it. I think what happened, I think, because wasn't the concept art released before Chappie came out? Yeah, so the concept art was released before Chappie. Then Chappie comes out and it was bad. I mean, I tried to convince myself I liked it. I was like, yeah, yeah. it's like a three out of five film. And, and it's no, it's just soured. Yeah. I think it's generally down to the, the quality and, and reputation yeah. of Chappie and the the general reputation of Neil Blomkamp as well. Because I think by Chappie, it was um, very clear that Neil Blomkamp was a one trick pony. Yeah. And uh, was just making the same film over and over again, but with diminishing returns. And I will say, though, I'm still looking forward to whatever Neil Blomkamp makes next. But it is, I feel like I'm in a situation where the next film is going to make or break him for me. Yeah, I think so. It needs to be something special or something that is at least breaking new territory for him as a director. For me to begin to appreciate him in the same way that I used to following District 9. Because when District 9 came out, I remember saying... This is this guy's first film. We've got a whole career ahead of him. This is going to be great. And then two films later, I'm like, uh-huh, maybe not, you know, mm. <laughs> pulling at my shirt collar. Like, ooh. It really hinges on whether he treats Chappie as a, a learning experience and recognises its shortcomings. Yeah. And decides to pursue something completely different. Because I think the other issue with Neil Blomkamp, that he his um, genre 
interests are very narrow. Yeah. Uh, which is quite unlike a lot of directors. Most directors will at least do some kind of variation or yeah. different subject matter, but he's dealing almost in the same universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he needs to like come out of that and, and do something completely different. Did you see any of his short films? Yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. I mean, I've even seen the film that Chappie's based on, uh, like, yeah. is it Tetraval? Yeah. But even they are just short-form versions of the same idea. The one that I actually wanted to see most was the horror film that he directed, the short horror film with the monster that was made up of the limbs of the, the miners on this asteroid. Oh, right. <laughs> Did you see that one? No, I've not seen that one, no. So it plays more into the thing. I can't actually remember what it's called, but at one point he was pushing it as a film that he was something that he was going to expand on and make yeah. a film out of and it was starring dakota fanning and she is oh. um she's an android in a mining facility that's being pursued by this creature that it's made up of the body parts of the miners that it's killed and it started out as like a microscopic cell or something like that that's infected somebody and slowly but surely it started to take over and build more mass mm-hmm. and so like for instance when it comes across a locked door you can see it's like cycle through the different hands that it has to come across the right one that will open the uh, the keypad and that type of thing. And it was and it makes these horrible noises. And I watched that and I thought it still feels rooted in Neil Blomkamp a bit, but I've not seen him make a, a straight horror film. And it had a lot of tension to it as well, and a lot lot of intrigue because there's almost a scientific mystical element to it as well that's barely yeah. just touched upon. And I was like, I would like to see him make that kind of film more than I would like to see him make an Alien sequel. Yeah, to be honest, it might even be good for him to do something that's absolutely nothing to do with anything to do with sci-fi. Sci-fi, yeah. I mean, if he's doing a horror film, do it with no sci-fi elements. Yeah, perhaps even just take out the android out of it. I mean, a good director to compare him to would be, say, someone like John Carpenter. Yeah. But even John Carpenter dealt with a lot of different genres. Yeah, like, you, could, you look at The Thing and you look at Halloween, you can see that they're both made by the same filmmaker. Yeah. And they're both maybe rooted in horror, but they're both radically different films. Yeah, and obviously, and in between that, he makes The Fog and oh, yeah. Escape from New York. And then you've yeah. got Big Trouble in Little China and Christine, and they live... And they all feel like John Carpenter films. Yeah, yeah. So, like, he can make something that's wildly different without betraying what makes a Neil Blomkamp film a Neil Blomkamp film. Yeah, yeah. And I think he needs to do that, because I think if he's just going around the same sci-fi tropes the well has dried up yeah his next film will break him <laughs> yeah i think so but anyway <laughs> so that's what happens with the neil yeah. blomkamp film they bring him on board to write and begin production on an alien sequel an aliens sequel but that doesn't happen during this time as well the uh, the social media pages for all of the alien series rebrand themselves as alien universe so i actually think there was a genuine push there to make this film as well because they were pursuing the idea of making Alien a cinematic universe where we have the Covenant film, the Ridley Scott prequels going off and doing their own thing that explore more dark corners of this universe. And then you had Neil Blomkamp making a more traditional Aliens film. But for whatever reason, and like I say, Ridley Scott does say in an interview, it just didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. He started production on Alien Covenant and then that film just fell away. So shortly after that, Alien Covenant is announced. It's going to enter full production and it's moving to Australia. The previous films obviously had shot at Pinewood Studios, but that was booked up for the foreseeable future due to Marvel and Star Wars, I think it was. So they relocated to Australia, actually, with Thor, what's it called? Thor Ragnarok shot at the same time yeah, yeah. as Alien Covenant in some of oh, the right. same stages. 
and they enjoyed something of a rather large tax rebate as well. I think of about thirty yeah. million. So the budget is like one hundred and eleven million, but it's actually somewhere between eighty and ninety overall. Yeah. Do you have anything to add, by the way? Have I missed anything along the way? I think just in terms of like the script writing journey, yeah. In between Michael Green and, and John Logan, you do get Dante Harper, who seems yes. to be fulfilling a similar role that John Spates filled during the production of Prometheus, where he's yeah. the sort of more unknown writer, and then the bigger known writer takes it home and then actually does make quite a few fundamental changes in his later drafts. The main thing that he was explaining on the on the documentary was this idea of. Um, a dual narrative and the, a sort of stealth narrative, which is the Prometheus narrative. Yeah. That they start with this new narrative and then over the course of the film, the Prometheus narrative takes over. Yeah. And that was his general sort of big idea going like doing the rewrites. Uh, that yeah. That would be the case. But I feel like along the way, or I'm not sure whether the studio is encouraging him to do that. It seems like he leaned a little bit more heavily into the into the alien side of things rather than the Prometheus side of things. Yeah, and I, and I will say as well, when Jack Paglin and Michael Green were working on a script, I do remember that it was a lot more of a Prometheus film. There's a lot more artwork out there about what this planet looked like and what this planet could do and it leaned a lot more into the type of science fiction tropes that we saw in prometheus and the yeah. aesthetics well, called, that we saw in prometheus and it was yeah. called paradise well, it, lost paradise well it was called paradise and originally wasn't it and then it changed to Par- yes. alien paradise lost but well, yeah i remember when it was i remember when because obviously the previous film leans so heavily into that sequel yeah that i'm pretty sure as soon as prometheus was released or even before it was released that the name paradise was doing the rounds it was it was the film that even like just as production started really scott was still talking about it as being alien paradise it was going to be called yeah um i do know that when they first started working on a script this is immediately following prometheus it was called paradise lost that was going to be mm. the name and then it changed to paradise and then it changed to alien paradise and then eventually alien covenant mm. which i uh, think was in keeping with the naming films after the ships t- thing that they have going yeah, on with yeah. this new prequel series so yeah that's where they ended up and <laughs> to be honest the ties to paradise lost are <laughs> They were prominent throughout the entire film, very much on the nose, so to speak. But I think that's where some of the finer elements come from as well with this film. But yeah, so that really brings us up to this film and the film that they made. So I guess it's time for us to really start talking about Alien Covenant. And I guess I can't really talk about Alien Covenant without actually speaking about Prometheus for a short time. Yeah. If we're going to do this in a chronological order, yeah. let's begin with Prometheus. So mm-hmm. our episode has just come out. We recorded that in 2018? 17. 2017. Well, we recorded it prior to the, the release of Alien Covenant, didn't we? So it came out in 2017? Yeah, yeah. So yes, let's talk about Prometheus for a short time. Okay, Andy. So we recorded our podcast. We came down on separate sides of the fence. I haven't actually listened to the podcast since, but you mm. have. Yeah. And I remember I was a lot more forgiving and you were a lot more critical of the film. Yeah. How do we feel about Prometheus now? Now that Alien Covenant has come out, we have that context. How do we feel? I think based on our conversation just prior to recording, I think our uh, views on the film have have widened. There's a deeper gulf between us because you are softer on the film and I am even harder on the film. I think I can't overlook the film's bad elements because they're so bad that even if you've got decent cinematography and production design, you know, at the end of the day, it can't save what is essentially a script written by an idiot. And I do regard Damon Lindelof as an idiot, to be honest. I think he's a he's just an idiot. 
there's things in it. I just like seriously. If you were handing that in to any kind of screenwriting competition, you'd just be laughed at. Well, I will say that I am. <laughs> I have actually warmed to Damon Lindelof mm. since uh, because I watched the Watchmen TV series. But Damon Lindelof is a writer that really frustrates me because he is responsible for some of my favorite TV, like. Lost has a couple of absolutely great episodes that he's responsible for. Some really bad episodes that he's responsible for as well. But also, I recently watched Watchmen, the sequel series to the comic book. And honestly, it was one of the best TV series that I've ever seen. Both in terms of the risks that it takes, what it does with the characters, and what it has to say about the world that we live in now. And it feels like there's not a single element in that show that was lacking yeah, yeah. And I know that he was the showrunner for that series and he did a lot of the main body writing as well and everything worked. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that they're not making a sequel series or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. Like he said before it came out, he intended it to be one series and done and then somebody else can come in and do another story in this universe. That sounds like a great idea, but that is a perfect show. And yeah. like I say, Damon Lindelof, he can be so good. And then straight following that TV series, he releases... As a film called The Hunt, if you heard of that, it actually came straight to VOD because of the corona crisis. It's fucking terrible. I hated it. Like, yeah, it's supposed to be playing on these kind of left versus right politics, but it ends up having nothing to say because it doesn't draw a line or say what side it's on or anything like that. It's like this kind of centrist nonsense that it's just playing on the fence. Yeah, that sounds like the Damon Lindelof we know and love. Exactly. And I was like, I think Prometheus embodies everything I love about Damon Lindelof as a writer and everything I don't like as well. But I think what works primarily the character of david and what he does with that character considering how he was in previous drafts because as i say in the john spates draft he's like a monologuing bond villain that he becomes actually in this film that that yeah i was just gonna say i think what they do with david in alien covenant wouldn't work if that character wasn't as strong as he was in prometheus Mm. and that is damon lindelof's crowning achievement for that film i think And I also think that some of his writing is done a disservice by the really bad editing as well in the third act. But I still agree that Prometheus is both, like say, the best and the worst of that writer. And I think as well, because you mentioned you re-edited Prometheus as well. Yeah. I think that gives you an insight as well into that film that I don't have. I think also as well, I think when you view a film like that, when you're editing something, a lot of the technical shortcomings come to the fore as well. And I do yeah. think it's a film that it does actually look a bit TV-ish at times. I mean, if you actually look hard, it doesn't... I think we were talking about the the Red Epic cameras, and I think Red has maybe gone down in, in reputation. It certainly has, yeah. Since those uh, sort of early 2010s. Because the most noticeable thing about Covenant is that it's they use the Aria Lexus. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just can't be very forgiving of it because I not even like blaming Lindelof entirely because yeah, I know he was brought on quite late and um, he writes in crayon. So <laughs> <laughs> I'd say it's a responsibility of uh, Lindelof, Pietro Scalia, the editor, Ridley Scott, and probably yeah, the studio as well because they're all involved at the top. Yeah. And. I think it's just because for all the ideas that they have, hardly any of it ends up on the screen. And we can talk about the deleted scenes till the cow comes home, but they're not in the film. And and even though we, we were hoping for a director's cut. a re-edit or a director's cut, it's still not come. And I don't. I think don't it's think it come. is going to come. I think the whole issue with Fox and where 
because I know that like home video, the extras are starting to become a thing again in VOD terms as well. But I think that's going to have to take off in a big way for any re-edits or director's cuts or that type of thing to come across. And now that Fox yeah. has actually changed hand to Disney, Disney are not really known for releasing extended editions. So I can't really see that happening. No. The only thing I can think of, and this is maybe something we touched on a couple of episodes ago, was the um, the Snyder Cut and how that does on HBO Max. Perhaps, does yes. really well, then yeah, it may actually open the market back up to um, re-editing films and re-releasing. So, yes, cheer on the Snyder Cut, everybody. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I want it to succeed for those reasons, but... I mean, to be honest, I'm going to find it interesting, whatever, because that film is such a, a train wreck. I want to see an alternative version of that train wreck, to be honest. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it now, weirdly enough, mm. because I'm just curious. I, I am really just yeah. curious now. I want to see what it is. To be honest, I'd even welcome a, a David Ayer director's cut of Suicide Squad just to Same. see... Yeah, what was fucked around with because it's just a bit like a. It's, I suppose it's an autopsy, really, isn't it? It <laughs> is. That's more. What it's akin to. <laughs> it is. I mean, to be honest, if you offer me an alternate cut of any film, I'm going to be interested in seeing it because I'm always interested in the process of making films. But it can be. It yeah. could be fucking Under Siege Two. Oh, we've got this extended oh, yeah. edition of Under Siege Two with an extra two <laughs> minutes of Steven Seagal sat in a chair struggling to get up, and I'll be like, yeah. With his crippling diabetes. <laughs> That's a film. <laughs> that is a film in which, at one point, there's a scene in which Steven Seagal runs up some stairs, but they've had to speed up the footage because he runs so slowly. <laughs> like, it says everything about Steven Seagal. Oh, uh, yeah. So, Prometheus, as well, just to give some summary as well, I am absolutely aware of its faults, but I think after we did our episode, I walked away actually from our episode thinking, I- I'm not too sure if I was too negative on the film considering. I do appreciate it. And then I went to the Alien Day screening of Prometheus and Alien back-to-back, and then Alien Covenant came out like a week later, and I saw it all as part of that. And seeing Prometheus on the screen again, it worked for me. It's an unashamedly big movie with huge ambitions that sticks out like a sore thumb in this current glut of films that we, we see now. And I still have a lot to appreciate about it. And I do understand that a lot of what I appreciate about Prometheus is what it's trying to do rather than what it does. Yeah. And I get that. But for what works, it speaks to me on a profound level that I feel like it's missing from films these days. I don't see any big risks anymore. And it still works for me. To put it down to that level, because, yeah, it's a film that definitely would work on a big screen still. And I still remember when I watched it for the first time, it being very impressive, like on the IMAX and everything. Yeah. But I do think in its final theatrical reiteration, and I'm stressing that because, you know, we do go into on the previous episode that there is a much better film in there. Yeah. But it's definitely a, a case of style over substance with the final theatrical version. And I know you're sort of talking about having films taking risks, but I'm still of the view that those films, and I'm kind of speaking more directly to the studios now, if you're having a film that's taking risks, you better not hamper that because if it falls down flat on its face, then that's just going to make it harder for things to move forward because you can only rely on these franchises for so long yeah. before you have to come up with something new because people get fed up eventually, even if it takes decades. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The best example of that would be the Western and how when the Western fell out, the whole studio system went tits up. Yeah. The same thing's going to happen with the When the superhero movies. movies fall out, yeah. Yeah. It may take another 10 years, 15 years, but it's going to happen. 
it, of course it's going to happen. As the world changes around us, what audiences want is going to change as well. The next big mm. thing is going to come along. I am very interested to see what happens to the studio system once this change happens and if it does happen and it will Mm. it's just the eventuality of when it does but i get a feeling that by that point as well it's going to be all disney anyway (laughs) there's only going to be one studio all hail disney oh boy i think we mentioned this a couple of episodes ago disney are going to start having quite big issues because they've got a huge identity crisis yeah as soon as this disney plus thing came out it was very apparent that they have this big identity crisis. They're being very restricted in, in what they can make. Yeah, it's really beginning to manifest in their output, isn't it? Mm. Okay, so there we are with Prometheus. I think, as you say, the gulf between our opinions has grown slightly, you might say. And that really brings us into Alien Covenant. And just to really say how I feel about this film up front, as I mentioned about Prometheus, it's a film that I appreciate, but I recognise that it has faults. With Alien Covenant, I am going to say that this is my favourite Alien film in a post-Alien 3 universe, like from that film onwards. This is the film that feels closer to Alien and Alien 3, those type of films. And I don't just like what it does right, I love what it does right. And I don't think it actually falters at all until really the final act, when it is obligated to become an Alien film. And that's where the issues arise for me. But I would say that the bulk of this film, I kind of love it. But weirdly, I've not gone back to it as often as I have other films in the series. Yeah, I would go as far to say that if you smashed Prometheus and Covenant together, you'd end up with a really good film. (laughs) Because I would say this is a case of this film giveth, but also taketh away. It feels like they're almost like opposite sides of the of the same coin. Yeah, uh, in, in a lot of ways, and it seems to be that this is the film that they were making before Lindelof came on board. Yeah, there are quite a few bits of recycled material from the earlier John Spates drafts that ended up in this film. Everything regarding the Neomorph is certainly and, and David as well. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, they do bring David in back to what he was more like in the Spates draft. Yeah, and I actually really didn't like the idea of that whenever the Spates draft, but. I think introducing the Walter element as well into the film and given the context in which they set David up, they, for one, give us a character that gives David a grounding that's constantly with David. And two, they kind of contextualise it within the universe that he's actually been on this planet for 10 years and he's slowly gone insane. Yeah, yeah, I think that that helps. So you're able to make more sense of it than for him to just be a straight Bond villain in the space draft which he ended up being. Yeah. And it's weird because we talk about Bond villains and it's another film written by John Logan who famously did the rewrites on Skyfall. Uh, I mean, with all the David stuff, you can tell that John Logan's written that and and had so much fun writing it because it it just has the the John Logan cheeky gay sense of (laughs) humour. Well, that's it. I've I've actually written that this is the gayest alien film that I've I've seen. And I really mean that in like such a positive way as well. That's where I think this film has taken the huge risks. And the structure of it essentially is that the first act is more of your bog standard alien film. And it kind of meets the criteria of like aliens. I will say that one of my criticisms for it is I like what it's doing with the characters, with the idea that they're all couples on a 
colony mission and you have this one character as well out of the lot of them that's lost their couple <laughs> for some reason it kind of reminds me of village of the damned mm. but yeah so you have this character that's lost their couple they're completely alone and i like what it's doing with that group of people i like orem as a character i like daniels as a character i like walter as a character everybody else is kind of anonymous yeah doesn't really do enough with that element no. of the film that the tragedy that these people are losing their life partners as well I think it suffers from a couple of issues that quite a few of the other Alien films have suffered from. Um, Because if you go back to the original film, and Ridley mentions this in the documentary, and I think he's almost like misunderstood that original film because it's been so long. He talks about not wanting to care too much about the characters and their backgrounds because they're basically cannon fodder. Yeah, And I get that, and that's obviously something that was definitely in the original Alien film, but I think that the genius of the original Alien film is that, one, there's not too many characters. It's reduced to, like, seven. Yeah. So there's seven distinct personalities, and they're all played by very idiosyncratic actors. Yeah. That you you cannot mix any of them up because they are their own even like we were talking about with twin peaks like the fact that you know harry dean stanton is harry dean stanton there's no mistaking him yeah yeah exactly yafat koto is another big big name like big character i mean to be honest his casting was quite controversial at the time i think but i think it needed a few more danny mcbrides yeah in this in the cast like i agree because i know in the doc he talks about danny mcbride being the slim pickens yeah, it, it needed kind of more of that working class blue collar uh, feel to the characters because some of them just yeah. feel like they're just normal people. Exactly. Yeah, they're just bog standard, two dimensional normal people just caught yeah. in this. It needed more like, like you say, big characters. When you look big at them, when you look at Dan, Dan, yeah, p- big personalities. When you look at Danny McBride, even though it's Danny McBride, you instantly have a connection to to him as an actor as well. I always do, anyway. Yeah, yeah. It needed more people like that as well. Yeah, I mean, it would have helped like if they'd leaned even more heavily into that and maybe his wife be like Southern or something like that. Yeah. Because the one thing I would say as a positive on the Prometheus side is that they purposely seeded that crew with pretty well-known actors or actors who were distinctive in their own right like of course you yeah. know things like like you know, obviously you had your Idris Elba and Charlize Theron yeah called Sean Harris Sean Harris yeah Rafe Spall and uh like Benedict Wong yeah actors who are very idiosyncratic yeah and I feel that this is actually a, a shortcoming of, of Covenant because I I think the dialogue and the banter is a hell of a lot better than mm-hmm. the Prometheus stuff but if you'd taken the cast from Prometheus and put them in this film in those roles, I think it would have been a lot stronger. Yeah. I remember it mentioned in the uh, the making of this film, one of the things on the message boards that I used to go on was that it does feel like Prometheus had a cast that probably cost a little bit more to obtain. Well, the whole movie cost a bit more. I think that's why this film feels a bit smaller. I will say, though, I like its smallness in terms of yeah. its... Um, oh, yeah, scale. yeah. I think... But you can tell they've let, they've spent less money on the cast. Yeah, most yeah. certainly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so the, the first act is your bog-standard alien film. And, but it's an alien film that I actually enjoy. There's a really good mystery as well pushing the film. We know where it's going because we've seen Prometheus. And obviously anybody that's seen a trailer. But I like where it is going with this planet and what it's exploring about it. It's one of those films that I wish I had gone into seeing without knowing anything about it. Yeah. 
I would say that with the moment that David is introduced and the scene in which David is playing off against Walter, the whole I'll do the fingering scene, that was the moment in which I remember being sat in the cinema and I thought, I love this. I didn't just like it, I loved it. And every yeah. scene with them interacting made it stronger and stronger. I would say that the other characters actually became a lot more peripheral at that point and yeah. it became the film about David and Walter. And that whole yeah. reframing of it caught me off guard and I loved it. And I fell for it in a big way over that. And interesting that those are the Marmite moments for a lot of people. Exactly. That was actually one of the things that I was going to mention that like even the, because we were saying it's a very John Logan script, it very much leans into a lot of queer imagery and dialogue as well in terms of, you know, I'll do the fingering is certainly a funny line, but I think it's intended to be funny. It's very tongue in cheek oh, and yeah, wh- yeah, whistle totally. and I'll come. They know what they're doing. It's not meant to be unintentionally funny, but everybody approaches it as such, I think. And I think it's because it makes people feel uncomfortable a little bit yeah i think based on the documentary as well they wanted a bit more of michael fassbender's personality coming through yeah a bit more because i think this is the third film that ridley scott had worked for him by that point. yes the counselor previously as well he loves michael fassbender he loves working with him because yeah whenever you see him on set he's just a, a very humorous man mm-hmm. and just very easy to get along with and very dedicated and i kind of <laughs> I'm a bit sad that he's been involved in some turkeys recently. I feel like his star has faded slightly since Prometheus. It has. Assassin's Creed is the one that's done it, I think. Yeah. More so than Prometheus, because even from Prometheus... And, and being it was tied to the X-Men films. Yeah. Prometheus was a hit, but everybody walks away regardless of your opinion of the film, thinking that David was the best character and Michael yeah, Fosbrenner was well the best role. Yeah, he came out well in that film, yeah. But then you look at his other output, like you say, Assassin's Creed, and then what happened with Magneto and Dark Fate and that type of thing. Dark Phoenix, sorry. And Apocalypse. And- Apocalypse, yeah. It's weird because he is making the right decisions as well in many ways. Like, Assassin's Creed, all right, it's a video game movie, but you've still got, like, Frank Marshall producing it. You've still got, like, talent behind the screen. You've got the director of Macbeth, which is a great adaption of that Shakespeare play. Yeah. And then it ends up being what it is, which is completely underwhelming and... It looks half decent, but the story goes nowhere, and it it's just very dull. It's very boring, and I can't actually remember much about it other than feeling I was very bored throughout. And then you've got everything yeah. with X-Men as well. That feels like a right decision for him to make, because Days of Futures Past and First Class were great, but then he's kind of like tied to that franchise with the multi-film contract deal, yeah. and it just kind of careens off a cliff straight mm. after Days of Future Past. In many ways, he's making the right decisions for all the wrong movies. Yeah. But yeah, you can tell that there's a, there's a shift in gear where the whole movie's built around Michael Fassbender. Yeah. Having the dual role as well. Yeah, after a certain point, it just becomes a Michael Fassbender movie for quite a long time. And how, how is your feeling? Because you did mention that it was like a Marmite thing as well for audiences, and it certainly has been. How was it for you? Because it's something that I respond to, and I know people that respond to that element of the film normally come down very strongly on one side or the other, and I'm very strongly on the positives. How do you feel about that whole section of the film? I would say I'm actually maybe one of these rare people that's in the middle, because whilst I like it, I do appreciate that David's become a little bit more cartoony. Yeah. Very much in the way that that, how they treated um, Hannibal Lecter, in that way i feel like <laughs> yeah there's a couple of things where i felt like maybe fassbender hammed it up slightly too much just dialed that he needed to have dialed it down a tiny bit uh, mm-hmm. in certain places and i think also covenant and prometheus suffer from some of the same issues in their 
structure and pacing. Yes, that's where my issues do arise. Well, as soon as they meet David and go to the plaza and that sort of... Yeah, the cathedral. The, the narrative just stops. It just goes, grinds to a halt. And I feel like some of the um, the staging and narrative thrust yeah. is sort of... It sort of meanders about for a bit. Uh, I mean, I don't think to the same extent that Prometheus does, because Prometheus mm-hmm. really meanders around after the halfway point. Yeah. I know also as well that because of something that they ended up taking out from some of the earlier drafts, that may have been a, quite a big issue, because there's, there's a big white elephant in the room that we haven't talked about yet, is the fact that Nimi Rapace is not in this film. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of the issue. Yeah, because you can tell from our reactions when it comes to Prometheus as well that that has also turned out to be something of a Marmite film. I will say that weirdly, I think that the opinion on Prometheus has softened, especially when we look at the IMDb score. It's kind of settled completely at 7 out of 10. I think it's bang on 7 out of 10. All right. But also this film is so nihilistic in an Alien 3 type of way. Uh, what it does with those characters that even people that walked away from Prometheus thinking, oh, like myself, I want to see more of this kind of alien film. (laughs) This like makes a statement partway through that you're not going to get that. No. Her story has come to a shattering and upsetting end. Yeah. Again, I like that because of the alien threeness of it as well. It very much reminded me, I described it as being the most nihilistic film since Alien 3, but I actually think it's probably more nihilistic than Alien 3 because at least Alien 3 ends on a message of hope that despite everything that had happened to Ripley, she still managed to do the right thing. Um, She may have given her life, she had the choice of saving herself and giving the alien over, but she gave her life and saved everybody. Yeah. But that ends with this big message of hope, and with this film, it kind of like ties up Numi Rapace's or Shaw's character arcs in the most brutal way possible. And then with Daniel's as well, the moment that she decides that she does have something to live for, that she does want to live, it leaves her in the dark once more by having her be the plaything for David for yeah. for who knows what. And whilst I take those as positives in a behind the scenes way, I think they've come about because of a lack of nerve yeah. rather than anything organic. Mm. Because I do know that in some of the earlier drafts, uh, her character does appear yeah. and is in sort of the catacombs and hiding from David. They come across her there. And that, I think that's why maybe the narrative at that point does feel a bit static because they've had to pull something out of the film because the studio it seemed to be i read something about um from a someone involved in the production that the studio it was actually a studio call to not have her in the film yeah and it seemed like her role was being reduced more and more as pre-production wound on yeah to the point where the studio just said we don't want her at all because they never wanted her in the first place. Yeah, I believe it was the studio were pushing for Gemma Arterton in the role originally, yeah. and it was Ridley Scott's decision to cast Numi Rapace. I mean, you take away that accent, and she's fine. Yeah. You know, that's that's the issue, that they've saddled her with this poor English Rose accent. Yeah, that's virtually non-existent, apart from people saying that she's English. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it seems to be that the studio just did not want her at all. They didn't want to market the film around oh, her. Oh, right. They were almost like forced to take her out of the film and deal with her in that way. It's strange because I wonder if that had any play with the idea of them taking out the prologue as well. Because originally we were supposed to have a whole section of the film that was dedicated to David explaining their time together on the ship. And they actually released it as like a prologue for the film. And it's one of those pieces of material that absolutely should be part of the film somewhere. Yeah. Even if it is in flashback. It looks like it should be 
an extended part of that flashback where the back end of that sequence is in the film. It is, yeah. But because Dave is narrating it, it does feel like he's narrating it to Walter. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So if I was ever going to do a re-edit of it, which I may do, I would put it there because it is part and parcel of the same sequence. Yeah, especially because when you do actually come to see the fate of Shaw, because I think that's what this film is actually missing in that section as well. Like, I do agree with you that this feels like a film that is episodic in its acts. Like, the first act is all about this mystery of what is this signal? Where is it coming from? What is this planet? Why is there no life on this planet apart from botanical life? And what are these life forms that we're coming up against here? These parasitic life forms. And it's like this mystery of what's happened there. But once that, that gets solved the moment that David is introduced. And then I do agree that in terms of the narrative, it does stop to allow this power play between Walter and David to play out. Yeah. That doesn't really play out against any background other than I would say it's more of, it turns into more of a haunted house story yeah. at that point. And that's where it feels a lot more confined. I do like that it, it all works for me. But I can certainly see that it is episodic in that nature. I think actually by having that prologue as well, it would perhaps add more to that section of the film because it would give us more questions, what's happened to Shaw, yeah, rather than just showing a grave. And we need that little reminder of who she is as a character as well, rather than just as a hologram, but we need to actually see her physically interacting with another character so that when yeah. we do see her body later, it's far more shocking to see her in that state. Yeah, and going back to that kind of episodic structure i wish they could have thought of a more imaginative way of getting yeah. the the covenant crew on that planet yeah i think in the way that they did it, it's very generic they, they, i think they should have come up with something a little bit more imaginative to get them on that planet because it does feel very stuck at times especially mm. that first part of the film i like it up to a point but when they start getting the signal it's like oh it's, it just feels a bit routine, and I think it almost like, you know, we're talking about uh, how Star Wars seems to reveal that it has quite a few limitations. Yeah. This is almost signposting that this format has quite a lot of limitations. And then I think also as well, it is very derivative at that point in the film. So I just feel that they could have come up with something a bit more imaginative structurally. I think it, overall they could have come up with something a little bit more. I agree with you that the structure of it is not the most creative. But for me, it's more so what it does on a character level that I find far more interesting. And what it, I mean, I've said this about Prometheus and what it does on a... Uh thematic level but i would say that this is even stronger it's not imaginative in terms of we start off as an alien film but it could become something entirely different i think once david is introduced i like that it does that and i like that kind of sweeping of the rug out from under your feet in terms of the type of film that you're watching mm. i know that that seems to be the mission statement from the start from what you've mentioned of the previous writer as well but that may have been more prominent in previous films I actually think, like, in terms of its ambitions, I see where you're coming from in terms of the blunt structure of the film. That, yeah, it's not as ambitious as Prometheus and it's not even as ambitious as other films in the series. That would say that uh, perhaps even lesser than this, like even Alien Resurrection or that type of thing. Mm. But also, I don't think that's where its ambitions lie. I think its ambitions and its risks are taken by indulging this whole queer tone and what it does with David. I know you mentioned that he becomes a bit more of a cartoon character in this, but I think that they take such big risks with how they present him in this film that, depending on who you ask, they paid off or not. But I think that reaction shows you the kind of risks that they were taking with that character. 
that's where it all lies by making this whole like and this whole paradise lost thing that they have going on with david being our satan character bringing our characters through hell i, I mean throughout the entire film there's loads of references to paradise lost in terms of the imagery that's used as well there's a lot of references to john martin's artwork as well from paradise lost but i'll, I'll go into that more later as well but i guess that's ridley scott's background in art shining mm. through the but I would say that that's where the risks are actually taken is with those characters. And the way in which it allows the film to actually stop and for these characters to interact and for us to really get a handle of them. Like, it's an alien film with a scene in which two androids essentially engage in allegorical sex whilst playing a flute. Yeah, I think the, the problem I have with it is that that stuff is very... I think the word is fruity. <laughs> But I think the reason I think it stands out and maybe why it stands out a little bit too much to some people is that the stuff around it maybe isn't fruity enough. Yeah. I think if you'd had maybe a slightly net less generic cast for the crew of The Covenant, outside of the main four, which would be obviously Oram, Daniels, Walter, and Tennessee, outside yeah. of that, if, if the rest of the cast had been as idiosyncratic, I genuinely feel that maybe the David parts of the film wouldn't stand out so much because it does feel like it does jar slightly tonally mm -hmm. with the sort of Covenant side of the film. And I think if they'd maybe meshed a little bit better, and I think also in that part, because, yeah, the narrative does stop and there's a couple of lapses in time where the, the life cycle starts to resemble AVP. That's the beginning of the uh, the issues that I have with the film as well. Yeah. We'll go into that very shortly yeah. as well. Because I, I do sound like I'm coming quite hard but on the film, but uh, it does actually work quite well up until that point. <laughs> yeah. So. To me, that's it for me, though. It's, um, it's in those first two acts where the film does all of the legwork that makes me not just like it or appreciate it despite its faults but that's where all of the stuff that i love is and it's at the mm. point in which they feel obligated to actually introduce the alien and the life cycle because the life cycle itself it feels like it's more of an afterthought and in terms of like you mentioned avp it's now been reduced to what feels like mere minutes in terms of incubation and that sense of time is lost entirely. Like, that's something that they do really, really well in Alien. And I don't think Ridley Scott's actually got the time for all of that. I think he actually captures the Alien very well when it's on screen. In terms of it, you never really feel like you're getting the best glimpse of it that you can. It's always bursting out of the shot or it's always taking up too much of the frame. You never really get a chance to properly dwell on it, even when it's in harsh light environments. It's always moving too fast. And I, I listened to the commentary. I know that that's something that he really wanted to make sure that he included. He includes more of it than you would normally get in, like, for example, Alien, because you can do more with it with, like, CGI and stuff like that. I still think you see far too much of it. Even though it's, it's more restrained than other films, I still feel it falls into a lot of the same traps. I think the only way to do this well is to actually get rid of any technology in it because as soon as you have that, your possibilities become endless and you get lost very quickly. I didn't find the alien scary at all in this film because I just generally thought you saw it too much. I think the, the, there's a biggie. There's one shot of, I think, when they're actually on the ship at the end and Tennessee's looking at the... Oh, is it might actually be Walter looking at the, at the security yeah, footage. The, the and there's one where he goes down like a shaft 
and that just felt like straight out of Alien Resurrection. That's actually a shot that I seem to get a lot of a reaction before the film came out as well because I, th- I don't yeah. think the CGI is the best in that shot at all. The CGI is a little bit wonky at times. It, it, it's a little bit inconsistent. But I don't know. I think everything in the Terraformer Bay with the Alien I think is perfect. The amount that you see of it, it's walking on its hind legs throughout the harvesters and stuff like that. Yeah. You only see it in quick glimpses and even so it's obscured by machinery, kind of alluding to what it could become in the future. I don't actually think the alien is that scary anymore. I do feel something that is a kinship to Ridley Scott in that perhaps the alien is beginning to feel done. I genuinely disagree because you can watch Alien, uh, you know, however many times it's still scary. I think the ideas are scary. The effect of that film has not worn off. Yeah, I mean, it may have worn off a little bit from when it first, because obviously you don't get people vomiting in the cinema anymore. But I still think the the feeling that that film gives and how they deal with the alien in that one, they've still never really got close to it. Yeah, but I think the main thing with that you're talking about the terraforming bay. I think that part of the film is probably my least favorite bit because it is such a grab bag of greatest hits by that point Mm -hmm. that scene is pretty much the climax of one and two combined and also i feel like at at this point because they've done it so much i feel like having the false ending and it's kind of been overused uh, within the series yeah i think they should have done something else because actually even though you do see the alien a little bit too much in my opinion the sequence on the transporter with the other alien i think is actually more successful because it's doing something a bit different Mm -hmm. than what they end up when the other one's on the ship yeah Well, while I'm talking about everything in the uh, terraforming bay, I'm strictly speaking about the way in which the alien has been captured. In terms of story terms, blasting out of the airlock once more is one of the least imaginative ways that you can actually face the thing. I think it all happens very quickly as well. Like The final act of the film feels very much like an afterthought as well. And Ridley Scott talks about in the director's commentary that he speaks about it almost like it's an obligation, and it certainly feels Mm -hmm. like that as well. The most interesting parts of that whole section is everything with David slash Walter as a character as well, especially where the film ends with that character and what it ends with a promise of. I say despite the obligation parts of the climax, the actual very end is very strong. I would say so as well. I think it actually leaves the series in a better place than Prometheus did by the end. Yeah, I think it does as well, especially because it's made now a hardline decision on who David is going to be. There's still a Mm. bit of ambiguity about David in Prometheus. We know that he's the one that kind of spearheaded all of this, but we don't know how much of it is due to his programming, what Wayland Mm. has asked him to do. He's bound to do what his father asks. In this film, it makes the very clear distinction that what David is doing is David's will. So it ends with a far more unambiguous ending that this android is evil. He is Satan. And now he's got these 2,000 experiments for him to work on. The only thing that he's been lacking on this dead planet has been living hosts and now he has more than he can count i actually read a very early john logan script last night as well and it's very much the same as what we get there are some differences like rather than being infected by spores they're actually infected by worms their body get riddled with parasites like we see with um charlie with the thing in his eye the little worm in his eye like they get infected by parasites that then incubate the host inside of them they make the body a living like egg and then eventually the neomorph is born But also one of the other things that it does is it pushes the idea that this storm that's preventing the Covenant from getting close to the planet and from anybody really entering or exiting the planet, it's man-made. It's man-made by, well, or alien-made by the engineers to, if anything does happen, like a outbreak or anything like that, it essentially quarantines the planet. So the planet's been quarantined and David's been stuck there with like many ships in which he could use to leave. 
At one point, I think even in the, in the deleted scenes, we see about like three or four juggernauts in the open yeah, plaza yeah, area. Yeah, that. Yeah. It's a shame they cut that out, actually. Just a nice little shot. I think it's because they cut out the dialogue about David having been forcibly stuck there. Because we yeah. know he can actually pilot these things. If he wanted to leave, he could leave. But they cut out the dialogue that really um, illustrates that actually he's been kept here against his will because of this last gasp engineer technology that's quarantined him. So he's had all of this creation at his fingertips, but nothing to use to create. And that's the idea as well. I think that's where the horror comes with Numi Rapace's character, that one of the questions that I ask about her is, how long was she alive? And how long, judging by like the pictures, David's drawings, this is where it becomes truly horrifying for me. And this is where I think the terror of this film comes from. It's like these ideas, like thinking about what he's done to her over the years. And you see from the pictures, are they things that he's imagined doing? Or are they things, is he drawing from memory? Has he been stripping her down and rebuilding her over many years whilst she was living? Yeah. In a way as well, it brings her character full circle. Because we always talk about in Prometheus that they bring in this element of her actually being barren in a really ham-fisted way. And that film kind of like deals with her unwanted pregnancy, let's say. Then it really comes to a horrifying conclusion because I think there's even the implication that the eggs are perhaps something that's been spliced would repace herself. Something that her body has harvested in some way, considering the way we see it splayed out and opened up. Mm. And I think that's a fitting but very upsetting end to that character dealing with. That's where the nihilism comes from, and that's where I think the horror of this character comes from. But yeah, in the original scripts as well, they have this line that David wants to use the Covenant to come back to Earth to use that as his playground. He wants to become an engineer, essentially. I think this is where it maybe slightly falls into the same traps that... Prometheus falls into because that's all really interesting but it's not in the film I would say that that element isn't in the film but there's plenty of other that I've just spoke over that that is in the film I think they dialed it back too much again okay from looking at the commentary and, and I get the impression that at times Ridley Scott's a very insecure director because we haven't talked about it yet but the, a big bugbear of mine in the film and I'm not sure whether it's a Ridley Scott thing a studio thing or a Pietro Scalia thing but that opening scene with Wayland with the credits over the top of it. Yeah. I hate that the credits are over the top of it. Yeah, me too. It genuinely angers me that the credits there because one, it makes the thing look cheap. Yeah. It, you know, it looks feels like a TV show. Excuse me, we've always spoken about how we hate credit sequences that aren't designed to be credit sequences because it's very obvious that it wasn't designed to be a credit sequence. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, and when you, when you watch the extended version on the deleted scenes, it plays so much better than it does in the actual final version because you're not distracted by the poorly placed credits where they've tried to like put them in. You can you can tell by the end they're running out of spaces to put the credits in. <laughs> yeah, um, in fact, I really don't like as well that of all of that as well, the title begins over the shot of David, but you can't see it because it's a white background. Yeah. And then when it cuts to the black space, you can see, whoa, already some of the yeah. titles come up. I didn't see that appearing. Like it's clearly been an afterthought. And I actually love that whole scene I, I think that scene is one of the few scenes in a film that actually makes prometheus a better watch because it justifies something yeah it justifies the casting of guy pierce in that role for something that they didn't do with prometheus that they intended to do with prometheus so i think it adds that kind of justification there and it's a great scene it's like a very strong scene to open the film with but it is hampered by the fact that once more and it is a bugbear of mine you end up with credits over the actual film the actual narrative yeah and it's not like it's 
a throwaway narrative either. This is integral to the rest of the film. I generally get the feeling that quite a few of these issues in both films are actually are down to Ridley at the end of the day because it seems like when they get to that stage in production, he does slightly lose his nerve because yeah. in the commentary, he mentions that, that he would be worried that people would find it boring. I mean, in fact, speaking of this film, he once again talks about hitting this two-hour mark. He says his first cut of the yeah. film is two hours, 30 minutes. And he has this obsession with films hitting a two-hour mark and that's it, two hours and done. And I remembered one of his criticisms of Blade Runner 2049 was that it was too long. And... I mean, Ridley Scott had the choice, really. It came down between him making this or Blade Runner 2049. I actually think he made the right decision for him by making Alien Covenant and Blade Runner 2049. And especially because after the fact, he said that it was a too long film. And that's why it failed. I don't think that's why it failed. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And I, A very poor marketing campaign made it fail, oh, I think. absolutely. Absolutely. And very poor trailers. And I do feel like Ridley Scott has definitely lost his nerve when it comes to when it comes to trusting the audience to stick with something. And that always shows, especially in this, like, like, like you see, you see it here because he doesn't have, he, he doesn't dwell on an, a title sequence or allow the film have room to breathe in the beginning in terms of introducing its titles. But also in terms of the end, I feel like the last acts of his films. How do you feel like about the David and Walter reveal at the end? Like, um, we spoke about it being good, but I've seen people throw the criticism at this film that, oh, well, it's not really much of a twist because you know it is anyway. But I think you're meant to suspect that Walter could be actually David. But it's all a matter of when he's going to reveal himself. It does kind of signpost it, but I'm not sure they're going for a twist like that anyway. I think it's more the audience is in the know, but the characters aren't. I think that's what they're going for. I don't think they're trying to be clever in that way. (laughs) Yeah. There are a couple of too many things with David that I think are a little bit pantomime-y. And also um, the things like, like, why does his hair grow? in terms of not even his hair on his head, but like stubble, because I'm pretty sure there's nothing in the manual about that. No, but they do mention that they made them too human. Yeah. That is one of the things that is pushed in this film, is that David is somebody that was made to be too human, and we found that rather upsetting. Yeah. So perhaps that hair growth is a thing that was included. But I don't don't mind that. I like that you instantly get to see the passage of time when you see that character. And see how it's yeah. weathered him as well, like this mm. once vain character. Because even straight from Prometheus, despite him being an android, he's very interested in the way that he looks. Yeah, yeah. His aesthetics. And so when we first see him in Alien Covenant, we've taken that away from him. So we know that there's already something off about this character. Yeah. And like, I get where you're coming from, that in a logical sense, it doesn't really make sense. But I think in terms of what it signifies for the character, it brings more to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And talking about David as well, a bit further, I mean, I mean, now you say it feels a bit more pantomime. One of these the things that these films lack and i think it's notably so and i know that it's something that it's building towards is a giga aesthetic and sure when you look at the sets in within the um the juggernaut or the dreadnought or however they call it you can see that okay yeah it does look noticeably alien but you're missing that kind of biomechanicalness of the environment as well and even when you see the alien, it's stripped down. They made a conscious effort to make it more organic looking because that's yeah. something that they're building towards in the series. Yeah. However, I do feel like David is probably the most Giga 
character that has been put to screen in terms of this series since the original Alien. Because if you look at it in terms of the thematics, that it's a bisexual synthetic that's both a physical and sexual threat that attempts not one, but perhaps two rapes in the film. And I don't know, there's something very grossly giger about that and about the images Mm, that that conjures with me. I mean, and we also as well go down the road of when we think of Ash and Alien, because I wrote a whole video essay about really essentially that built into Ash as a character. And I do feel like David is a character that Ash would very much appreciate as well. And and maybe as an aside, this episode is dedicated to Ian Holm. (laughs) Yes, definitely. (laughs) Oh, yes, of course. But yeah, like he's very much of the same ilk as Ash. But if we approach Ash as well, and the idea that in that film, he is the way he is because he is lacking a manhood. And we look at david in that same way that he's this android that's obsessed with creation and being the creator and yet he's probably lacking in the one thing he really needs to create so he's compensating in a whole manner of horrifying ways i love all of what that implies and this film i think really leans into that as well especially like in the attack of daniel's yeah, I mean, it definitely leans heavily into the superiority complex. Yeah. I mean, that whole opening scene's pretty much just about that. It's a wonderful little power play in that scene as well. It is, it is. However, I would say in doing so, I think it's almost like rendered Prometheus actually maybe even more redundant than we would have, like, because of the way that it deals with the engineers. Yeah. And also, you get it tons in the documentary, like hardly anyone mentions Prometheus. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, we made that film earlier. Yeah. But we're getting back to Alien. That seems to be the general consensus, getting back to Alien. Yeah. Maybe probably the way they've edited it, to be honest, but it almost feels like Prometheus is a bit of an embarrassment <laughs> to them Yeah. in some way. And like that whole... I don't think it is to Scott, but I think it is No, to... no, but I feel like the image of like the ampules going down onto the to the engineers is almost like i don't know it's almost like a cathartic thing a statement definitely a statement like it's killing the original prometheus too <laughs> it's like no I, I absolutely agree with you that it's almost symbolic there's definitely something in there yeah i do know from what ridley scott's already mused about the sequel and he's mentioned in the commentary as well that it's already written and it's already in place with john logan who knows what form that is it could even just be a treatment well he said that with the previous film he did <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah you never know so One of the things that he has said is that if you think that the engineers are going to let David get away scot-free with what he's done, they're not. So this idea as well that if Ridley Scott has anything to do with the series, which is very much up in air as to whether he will from this point onwards, Mm -hmm. I really hope he does. I really hope he's given the chance to make his third film, but I don't think that's the last that we've seen of the engineers. But I do agree that it is like a symbolic thing considering the issues with prometheus that they faced with the uh, backlash to the engineer characters but it's weird i actually think when alien covenant came out the opinion on prometheus had softened somewhat and that statement i know from some of the reaction has soured some people because they wanted to see more of the engineers and more of the engineer homeworld i think people were wanting the second film to justify the first film a bit more whereas because of the way that it handles that material it doesn't I mean, I do feel like it is a is a merging of the two, but yeah, I, th- I think that statement is the. I think we get to see a lot more of like like as we mentioned the architecture of this place, and it's weird. I actually I have more questions. I feel like questions have been answered, but I have more questions about the engineers' lifestyle as well because we see that they are this in many ways a advanced race, and yet when we see them, they also seem rather primitive as well. 
So it's a duality in terms of the characters that I want to see more of. Like, I, I want to see more of why that is, why they are this both very advanced alien spacefaring race. But yet, when we see them on the planet, and even when we see them in the deleted scenes in Prometheus, they are still, like, ritualistic and and primitive. And mm. it raises a lot of questions. I think a lot of thought's gone into that behind the scenes because when you see them oh, as yeah, well, definitely. you start to think about their history and background. And I think Ridley Scott knows the answers to these questions. It's not just something that they're just coming up with on the fly. But I certainly want to know more about them, even now. This film doesn't fulfil on that promise. Yeah, I, I do feel like there's, he does dial back too much on the subtext. I mean, even when you just go into the, the deleted scenes, I mean, we're discussing how the deleted scenes suddenly stop halfway through the film. Yeah. Uh, like the, the back end of the film's deleted scenes are not uh, for public consumption. Yeah. But there's things, little things that he's dialed back on. Like, I feel like there's uh, some sort of subtext that I picked up and went uh, during the, I only, I only listened to like 10, 15 minutes of the commentary, but the idea that there are, almost like two types of spiritual people. And there's the sort of more popularist version, which is the person that feels like God created everything and they're always there with you and there is a path. So very much the Aurum thing. Yeah. And shorter in Prometheus. And and also Rosenthal, because uh, in the deleted scene, there's there's a little thing of her doing uh, a Jewish prayer Oh really? Before you know, just before she bays, before she gets killed. Yeah. There's a, there's a little moment that I don't know why they cut it out. That kind of needed to be there. Yeah, and it, it really reinforces that that whole idea because uh, I feel like Ridley Scott seems to be very heavily on the idea that he is a spiritual person, believes in a higher intelligent power, but that power either died out or fucked off. Like he believes that we're alone. Yeah. But there's something more out there, but we are alone. And you see that duality in the, in these films. And it almost feels like the film is almost a slight rebuttal attack on those other people that think that the, yeah. their gods are still there. And Not listening. just that their gods are still there, but we are deserving yeah. of knowing why, yeah. the why of it all. Like, we're constantly asking why, and he's saying that if to find those answers is going to tear us apart. Yeah, and I kind of almost feel that that was just pushed a little bit more like he's just dialed back on it slightly yeah. too much because yeah i did i did like that idea it's all about like the hubris of creators just because we can create as well that we think we have a right to know why i think the the thing that brought it to mind was the wheat field sequence because obviously yeah. that's a sequence that has been borrowed mm-hmm. from an earlier treatment of a film which we i don't we we haven't just have we discussed it on this podcast but the uh original vincent ward version of alien 3 which is one of those great unmade films it is i reckon we could do a podcast episode about that and there's almost part of me that wished that maybe that could have been something that they leaned into with this film yeah rather than it being a colony ship Mm -hmm. because i do think that there is something in that concept maybe not quite as fantastical as vincent ward wanted it with the whole wooden planet thing but maybe something like that that maybe they could have done i still think there's some mileage in that concept yeah like if they had gone down the road of it being like the first pilgrims to the new world almost like the quakers was it the quakers that went um that ventured possibly (laughs) but they were escaping religious persecution from england anyway and uh and went to america like if you could have explored that more because we they do go down the idea of them being pilgrims out uh, looking for the new world but maybe perhaps brought in that symbolism of them bringing their religion with them and thinking that they can yeah bring this baggage with them to a new world and yeah 
hope they could find answers. Yeah, because actually that was one thing I forgot to mention, that although I do think the cast and the and the colonist is a little bit more generic outside of those four, because we probably haven't mentioned that enough, but I do like the fact that, yeah, I do like the idea of them being couples. Yeah. And I do like the idea of, as opposed to the... Um, experts that we had in Prometheus and I'm, I'm putting my fingers up in quotation marks because they're all fucking useless <laughs> uh, the experts that we had in Prometheus I like the idea that these are colonists that are there for a, a singular purpose and, and, and dealing with something like this they're completely out of their depth yeah. So when you get all the panic that sets in halfway through when things start happening, mm-hmm. you genuinely believe that they would act like that and maybe do stupid things and yeah. th- there'd be no protocol involved. Yeah, they're completely out of their depth with no no idea how to react. No, because I would say in terms of the straight horror part, that's probably one of the more successful parts of the film. And, and I just want to speak on something you have mentioned as well, like talking about this biblical subtext. It's very strange because actually I wrote in my notes as well that in terms of what Ridley Scott is doing with this film, especially in terms of the look of the film as well, is it has a feeling of Black Hawk Down meets a walk through the National Gallery. It's got this kind of like grittiness, real world feel that really helps the colonists. It really comes part and parcel with them in terms of it tries to feel a lot more grounded and a lot less wider in scope because I know that Prometheus goes for these really grand scopey ideas as well in a way that it captures that film. It feels a lot wider. This feels a lot more like confined and the camera feels a lot more in and amongst the group as well. But then also you've got like a lot of references I've written down, like in terms of the artistic references, you have plenty of references to the likes of Paradise Lost and the imagery that comes with that. So you have stuff like the heavenly hosts and you also have the angelic wreath, which is a load of um, angels looking up at the sky to these circular patterns. It looks very much like when the ampules are released from the juggernaut as well and the group. And then you have lots of references as well to John Martin's work in terms of his references to Paradise Lost. I'll just go through a couple there as well. Satan presiding at the uh, Infernal Council. Adam and Eve driven out of paradise. And you also have as well one of my favourites. And the first one that I actually noticed when watching the film itself straight off was Isle of the Dead. And it's where Shaw is resting. And it's where the trees are as well. And that is almost like a perfect replication of Mm. that piece of artwork. And I love that, as you say, it's got this feeling of groundedness with the colonists but it also is not afraid to get biblical as well in terms of its references and in many ways i actually wrote down that these are like biblical wagnerian and i guess wagner is a big thing for this film Mm. the big wagnerian biblical films in many senses that are packaged within this alien film especially this one this one in particular and i guess it's within those heavier strokes that i think that the film works best as well because I actually think it's it's the alien stuff that lets his film down a bit because it's not where Ridley Scott's, his appetite is for making these films. It's no. not where his passion is. And when I was talking earlier as well, that I do think that there is a sense that there's an alienist cookedness about the series now. And I know that like when we watch Alien, yeah, it still terrifies me. But I think that to just have the alien in a film is not enough anymore. And when I say the alien is cooked, what I mean is you just can't make an alien film. I'm not saying that you can't make an alien film that isn't scary. I'm just saying you just can't make a film with the alien in it. You need to be doing something with that creature. Something that we haven't seen before. Something that is a left turn. 
I mean, like for example, Alien Isolation works amazing. That's a video game, but that's because it places you in that world and you get to play it as a video game. But in terms of what it does with the character, it doesn't actually do anything new with the Alien itself either. And I think the next step forward, I'm not saying that we can't make any more Alien films. I'm saying that we need to be doing something special with that creature to justify its position in the film. And I don't think Alien Covenant does enough to justify using the alien and that's where it falls yeah. down for me because it's when it's dealing with that character that the film falters and that's the, the final act that stops it from becoming more than I think it can with the first two acts I think it's a great film that I love and with the last act it's like it's a competently made alien film but it's more like your bog standard alien film yeah and that's where it all kind of falls apart and that's what I mean by when I said earlier that the alien is cooked I, I would also add in that last act, it does get a little bit too schlocky. Oh, yeah, I've, I've wrote that as well, yeah. Uh, the, the whole shower scene. That's exactly I it, remember yeah. I remember watching that in the trailers and going, oh, no, yeah. hope that's not going to be like the whole film. But it wasn't, but I mean, yeah, that... that yeah. Boobs! <laughs> <laughs> Alien is, as we've always said, Alien is a B-movie done on an A-movie standard. The shower scene feels like it's a B-movie done on a B-movie standard. Yeah. It just feels like it's a trope of that particular genre. Like, sex in the Alien film has always been subtext. And, like, when they approach sex in this film with um, the characters of David and Walter, <laughs> like, like that's all subtext. That's how it should be played. And then they just kind of bring it into text here. And I think it becomes that's when it becomes really very schlocky and B-movie-ish. And oh, even I, was had... just, I was just thinking, did Brian De Palma guest direct that scene? <laughs> yeah, it is a it's a little bit of Brian De Palma, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I do actually know as well, I've got the, the book of the making of Alien Covenant, and one of the things that it does mention is that something that has been cut from the film was that there was a rather elaborate practical effect during that scene. That was when the alien bursts through the glass at I can't remember the name of the female character in that scene in the shower. But anyway, when it bursts like, through the I'm glass... I'm going to call her Christian Stewart lookalike. <laughs> she does a little bit, I never realised. Yeah. But when it bursts through the glass, it then attacks her, and they had this elaborate special effects gag, and it was all done practically. But you see the alien attack her. The way that they describe it, it's almost like it forces her through the other glass partition, and as it does so, it cuts off her limbs and stuff like that. You can see it like cutting through her as it moves. And they had an elaborate okay. practical dummy where it's like body parts would fall off as the alien hit them and bit them and stuff like that. All right. And they cut it all out of the film. I imagine it didn't quite pull off the way that they wanted or something like that, or it perhaps showed too much. But you can see it as well when you see the two bodies on the floor. You can see like the one that's far away. There are limbs missing and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they decided to go with that Lambert route instead, actually, rather than... We just hear the screams and it's implied what's happened. Yeah, yeah. I will say, what do you feel towards... Because I know we've gone on quite some time, but yeah. I, I do have to just finally just mention one of, the, uh, one of the elements that our audience are going to be expecting us to mention. But what do you feel about David as creator? You know, I'm not sure about it. I think I'm a little bit mixed. Like, in one hand, I really like the idea of it. But because I think they've dialed back the subtext, it does feel a bit... I don't know. Um, I know that they were trying to come up with some sort of backstory for the alien that wouldn't rob it of the mystery. Yeah. But I still think they did a little bit. Yeah, it's um, it's still alien. Like, in, it, it, a lot of people say it's not alien anymore because it's been created by an android, yeah. but it's still alien. It's still based on alien technology. Yeah, but I think the thing that hurts it is I think that the 
David's progress is maybe slightly too accelerated, and I think it ties into having to have the alien in the film. Yeah. It feels a little bit too convenient that he has all those eggs in the room and that he's all ready to go. Mm-hmm. And the whole Aurum chestburster thing, I think it slightly damages that. Because whilst I'm not averse to David having some hand in the evolution of the alien, I feel like it's a little bit too convenient. It needed to be at a slightly earlier stage than it actually was. I don't have any issue with the place in which David is at in terms of the alien progress, but I do feel like we don't really need this to tie into the beginning of Alien. I like the idea that this is something that David's doing on the side in its own separate spin-off universe to Alien, and I think that's where I want to see this series go. I don't particularly want to see it tie into the back of Alien. I would rather them just completely unhook themselves from that narrative and just continue down another path, and that's where this film works best as well. When yeah. it isn't reminding us that it's going to be tying into the back of Alien, as Ridley Scott keeps on referring to it. Yeah, that's the one thing I'm worried about if they do make a third film, because I, I did read something yesterday about something to do with a character that could be in the third film. It's like, oh, Ripley's the daughter of somebody. And I'm like, no, don't nah, do that. I, I think like, if they, like, that's clearly not something that Ridley Scott wants to do. And it, uh, no. I can and see. That's, no, that, that's Ridley Scott saying that. Well, from everything that Ridley Scott's done with these films, I don't yeah. think it's something that he wants to do. I think it's something that if anybody's pushed it on him, it's a studio level. Yeah, I think that's the problem with Ridley Scott sometimes. Sometimes his words are not his words. He's just no. channeling what the studio, and this is the compromise, but he's kind of sort of saying, oh, I'm agreeing with this because yeah. I'm, I'm user-friendly with the studios. You know, Exactly, like. yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't mind it. I don't mind David as creator of some variation of the alien. I really quite enjoy that. I like, I think somebody on one of the forums that used to go and put it this way, but the idea that the alien is created by a more Geigerish creation like David than just some biological warfare thing is far more interesting. Yeah, yeah. But I want to see this really in its own realm and its own spin-off, unimpeded by the idea that it has to tie into something. It has to be something else. Just let it be its own thing and give it its own space to breathe. That's what I want from this series. So I think we've really spoken about Covenant for some time now, so I'm just going to go over some very quick stats and facts, if that's okay. So bringing us round to the stats and facts, we're going to be looking at the box office for the film, the critical consensus, and that type of thing. So the budget for the film, I'll go through the box office first. The budget for the film was $111 million, and that was before the tax rebate. After tax rebate, apparently you're looking at somewhere between 80 to $90 million after tax Although I think that's disputed. I think on Box Office Mojo, it's like 90-something million. It's like 97. The tax rebate was something like 25% or something like that, the budget. But when you take that into account, who knows what reshoots cost or anything like yeah, that. So yeah. The opening of the film was 36 million, which is less than Prometheus's 52 million. And the overall North American box office was 74 million. So it made just over half of its um, opening weekend. I mean, horror normally has a steep drop-off anyway, and the Alien franchise certainly has in the past, but that is part of the course, really. It didn't open as well as they wanted it to. They really needed it to be making the $50 million opening. I do believe that Ridley Scott said if it opened at about $50 million, then the sequel would be fast-tracked, and then it opened at about 36 which is significantly under. And overall, worldwide, the box office was $240 million, which is $160 million Plus less than Prometheus. Mm. And then you have to adjust inflation for that as well. Exactly, yeah. It's like five years on. Prometheus was already quite divisive, but again, I think opinions had somewhat softened about that. It's it settled. 
but then this came out and it was truly a Marmite film. People loved it or people hated it. I mean, it has very strong defenders of this film. I do consider myself a very strong defender of this film, more so than I ever did of Prometheus. I really like a lot that Alien Covenant is doing. I really appreciate a lot that Ridley Scott does with the film, despite its faults. But yeah, it's a Marmite film. This has proven to be the most divisive film in the series since, geez, Alien 3, perhaps. Mm. I mean, I know that Alien 3 has grown in reputation since, but... I would say that this is the one that it feels most closest to, especially because it's linked to that film in terms of it's like Alien 3 has a very initially very nihilistic outlook. And I think this film does throughout as well. And that's hampered it as well. And the idea as well that it's not enough of an alien film to be an alien film and not enough of a Prometheus film to be a Prometheus film as well. Like people have felt that with the film. Talking about the critical reception, it had 65% overall, which is still positive, but more of the middling positive mark. And it had a 6.3 average rating. And the consensus is Alien Covenant delivers another satisfying round of close quarters deep space terror, even if it doesn't take the saga in any new directions. I mean, it doesn't take the Alien series into incredibly new directions but in terms of what it does with the Alien, but I would say in terms of what it does with its synthetic character that I think it does there. Because one thing I didn't mention, and I'm just going to mention very quickly, is I do think that David is the most interesting synthetic character since Ash. I mentioned that in the, the Prometheus episode, but the reason I want to mention it is because the synthetic characters after Ash, including Bishop, it doesn't matter that they're synthetic. The fact that they're a creation doesn't really have any bearing on the plot. The whole relationship between Ripley and Bishop in Aliens is dressing. It's just to add mm. tension in the scenes where the alien stuff is not really prominent and to add a certain sense of paranoia. Yeah. But in terms of what it adds to the film, in terms of what it's trying to say and its themes and in terms of a story level, him being a synthetic doesn't actually impact the story whatsoever. And I think that with Alien Covenant especially, it's imperative that David and Walter are synthetic. They are creations. Yeah, yeah. And that's the first time that's mattered, really, as much as this since Ash, I think. Definitely. Going back as well to the critic review, Ian Freer of Empire Magazine says, An upgrade from Prometheus, Alien Covenant amps up the thrills, but doesn't deliver a memorable crew member or the full-on onslaught of the series at its height. And he gave it 3 out of 5, and that's for Empire Mag. So the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is 55% which is actually rotten, and that's a 3.29 out of 5 average rating. And the IMDb score is 6.4 out of 10 to Prometheus's 7 out of 10. Hmm. So all in all, it's regarded as a lesser film to Prometheus, when I personally think it's a much stronger film. I would flip those figures completely. <laughs> uh, down to the Rotten Tomatoes percentage, because it is it 72 on Prometheus? Yeah. Um, I would say that Alien Covenant probably deserves to be in the 70s rating. Yeah. But yeah, I would, I would flip those completely i certainly would as well i genuinely think that like on paper people are being far too kind to prometheus whereas they're being a bit harsh on covenant i mean regardless of my opinion of prometheus again it has softened over the years as well i have become more appreciative of it but i do feel like alien covenant is the stronger film of the two and that is not reflected in terms of the box office and no. any of the other ratings whatsoever. So it's quite unfortunate that. Although I do think it's because of Prometheus, I think. Yeah. Although the opinion may have softened, I think people went into this film with a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And they were going to judge it more harshly. Because the thing I picked up on, uh, the, the big difference between this film and Prometheus, and this goes throughout 
I'd say marketing and release and aftermath, there was just so much more pomp and circumstance put into Prometheus mm-hmm. um, versus Covenant. I mean, even down to like the home video release, the home video release is a much more vanilla package. It certainly is. You know, there's no, there's no collector's edition. There's no big, long documentary. It was actually a, a disappointment, the home video release, because even when we recorded the podcast to Prometheus, I once said with Alien Covenant, it doesn't matter how the film turns out because we're still going to get a Charles de Los Rica making oh, of dear. with Alien Covenant. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to that as much as i'm looking forward to the film and i genuinely was and we didn't get it apparently and this is just from what i've heard i've spoken to charles de Rica over twitter a few times but apparently there has been a falling out within the ranks between Lazrica, fox and scott so god knows mm. what that's to do with but i imagine it's to do with uh, this feeling that these elaborate home video packages were becoming a lot less profitable yeah in fact i would actually go as far to say i thought about this last night that i the prometheus collector's edition is actually the end of an era yeah it feels it of that it feels like that was the pinnacle of yeah. a home video package because it's definitely one of the longest uh mm-hmm. documentaries it's like three and a half hours plus expansion pods that I think that's as good as you're ever going to get. And I feel like ever since then, since it was 2012, 2013, that because the Blu-ray market has dropped off a cliff and also because 4K has just become a very specialist thing rather than yeah. superseding it, and everything's gone over to streaming, unless that becomes more of a thing within the mm-hmm. streaming world, I think that is going to become less likely that we're going to have special features and, yeah. and things like that. It does feel like releases have become more and more vanilla. As time's gone on. That is what has to change. And I think what gives me hope, and in a way, it's very strange for me to actually reference Disney in a way of giving me hope, but then releasing like the Mandalorian making of series, where it's like each episode is how they made that particular episode of the show. And each one's about half an hour to 40 minutes long. That gives me hope. And that, that series popularity gives me hope that perhaps streaming services will embrace more making of documentaries like i would love to see a making of documentary of the irishman we're not going to get that no and disney's a funny one because they're very they're so guarded, guarded in, yeah in what they can do i mean you know the biggie is the sweat box is uh, the fact that that's never been released is still something that actually baffles me i don't understand why that's never been released as a as an actual finished product yeah. it's really not that bad it's really not that bad in terms of how it represents disney yeah but yeah they're so guarded i mean the fact that there's nothing on any of the star wars that resembles anything that honest i mean no. I, i'd say that the closest they get to is that that one on the last jedi disc i've not actually seen that the director's journey one i've not actually watched it yet but yeah i i just think the whole rollout of this film was just treated with much more caution and they were it's almost like they blew their load on prometheus yeah and when it didn't quite hit how they wanted it to they they really reeled everything back for this one yeah and they were so uncertain about this film as well in terms of pinning down a release date because originally it was meant to come out october time august september october i think it was actually in for september and what happened was they released the trailer at christmas and in that trailer, they announced that they were actually releasing the film in May or something like that. So they actually brought it forward a ridiculous amount of months. And it doesn't feel like a May film. It feels more of like it should have been released closer to Halloween, closer to that yeah. period of uh, a time. I think they fucked up in terms of the marketing as well and, and the release date. That certainly had a hand in it, I think. 
But because also that they pulled it up so far, I don't think the marketing ever really got a handle of the film. In every way, it felt like a smaller film. I appreciate that it does feel smaller, but it also feels biblical in, in, in another sense as well. But I, I'm, I'm more talking in terms of its treatment by the studio. Like it, it was treated as a lesser film like from the start. It's not as much as an event, as Prometheus no. was dealt with like it's, a, yeah, it's an it, event film, and this doesn't feel like an event. Yeah. I will say, do you have any final thoughts about Alien Covenant? There's only two things that I kind of wanted to mention is that that is the uh, the music by um yes jed kurzel jed kurzel and i was just gonna wanted to ask you whether you thought that do you know how movies used to do this i was thinking specifically of the superman films where like to superman 2 and 3 where they would credit john williams with the themes and, uh, <laughs> and then say arranged and conducted by you know alexander yeah. courage or whatever i kind of feel like that that should have been the case for this film i kind of feel like jerry goldsmith should have got a bigger credit at the yeah. start if i don't think that's the issue of jed kurzel i actually think jed kurzel's no. music's really good in this film this is one of my favorite scores of the series yeah. because it and it has a lot of references to heavy references to goldsmith but also to elliot goldenthal as well it feels like a nice merging of those two yeah but i absolutely agree with you that this should have had a credit to jerry goldsmith yeah it does at the end it does say like themes by jerry goldsmith yeah but i feel like almost like because it, it's it's especially in the first half of the film it's, it's yeah. leaned on quite heavily like because obviously it, you wouldn't want to not use it because it is great and I'm surprised that people haven't used more of it beforehand. It is weird because Ridley Scott talks about it in the director's commentary as Jerry Goldsmith having written an amazing score but he and Jerry Goldsmith didn't actually get on while they were making that film no. because Ridley Scott didn't like the music that Goldsmith was producing and it's only after the fact he's actually come round to it. Yeah, I mean I mean, I think the... Because um, obviously a lot of the music in Alien is, is reused from an earlier film. Yeah, but yeah, it does see it does seem like they they temp tracked the film yeah. heavily with that score. Does, and yeah. Jed Kurtzel had to come and <laughs> coming in and do. I mean, I, I discussed this with somebody else about temp tracking. I think it was in regards to Goldeneye. Yeah, when the situation there where <laughs> that is a real one. Yeah, where they temp tracked the whole film to Leon. Yes, which is why that film basically just feels like repurpose music from leon when, it does yeah when you're dealing with temp tracks is it's a fucking nightmare because if you've listened to the thing with a temp track you can't get away from it you can't divorce it from that identity what, what is the other thing that you wanted to mention as well there's something else that was that i picked up on again and i think it's because it was released in the same year and it's the same studio but i think this would have been shared with prometheus as well i do think that the film again would have benefited from being shot on film Oh, yeah. Because I think with any horror film, it lacks that grit and graininess that you get. Because even the alien, the original alien film is quite pristine looking, especially, you know, following its restoration. But it still has that kind of slight grit to it. It does, yeah. um, It has a a, a real world aesthetic that is brought to it by film grain. Like, that's the thing. I I really, really miss film grain and not like digital film grain that's added after the fact, but real film grain and this needed that texture and yeah we spoke about it with logan as well it's like these type of films you need to be providing that type of texture as well so go out there and make that decision that it's it's weird that i'm speaking about using film stock as being a ballsy decision in cinema today (laughs) i know that's just (laughs) madness um, although i I would say that i i think um the cinematography is quite a lot better than Logan and, and Darius Wolski is a, a very good yeah. cinematographer, especially considering what he had to do with Prometheus. I mean, I think that's the, the advantage that this film has over Prometheus that they, it, Prometheus is that they weren't hampered with having to film it in 3D yeah. uh, and just film it as a conventional movie. 
I think also the fact that they had the Alexa, which I think is a, a better digital camera than, than the Reds. It certainly is. So yeah, that's definitely something, a, another thing that Covenant has on its side. But yeah, it would have been nice to have had it done on film. But yeah, that's just the way that film industry has gone. <laughs> it is. Um, I do have one last thing to add as well. Um, something that I, I listened to the commentary last night, and I will say it's not the best Ridley Scott commentary. I always like listening to a Ridley Scott commentary, but it doesn't really give you many insights into the making of the film. It's more so just Ridley Scott talking through the film but it did yeah. reveal one insight that i'd like to uh, reveal to you today so originally the film was meant to end it well it ends this way with david walking through the nursery um listening to wagner and obviously it's a it's his big grand moment and originally <laughs> ridley scott filmed it in a way that included what he referred to as a hitler heel click you know, like a Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin little heel click. And he said yeah, yeah. it was originally because he had seen some footage of Hitler and Mussolini or someone like that sharing a glass of champagne and celebrating some victory. And as Hitler passed over his glass of champagne, he did a Charlie Chaplin heel click. And he said it was really absurd to see. And he wanted to include that for David at the end of the film, like him walking off into the distance and then doing a little victorious heel click. And he actually filmed it. I want to see that deleted scenes <laughs> oh and also james cameron hated the ending of this film that's the other thing oh really he hated the ending of this film because he said that you don't spend a whole film getting to know a character and getting to understand their plight and getting to you know empathize with them and then for them to be utterly destroyed in the final moments and i think it's almost that alien three thing playing out again and yeah, i also I was think gonna say that it isn't that type of film not every film has to have the happy ending oh that's one of the things i love about the, the film that it ends yeah. like that I think it's great. Again, I do say this about uh, in the Prometheus episode, but I do think that that's a very much more European thing to do. Yeah. That is not an American movie trope. No. It really isn't. And I can totally understand that if you're an American audience member that you would not warm to something like that. Yeah. Because it's not in your DNA, I suppose. Oh, of course, yeah. So, after all this, would you recommend Alien Covenant? Yeah, I would. I would say, unlike my feelings for Prometheus, I think it's a much more worthy film even though it still has its flaws mm -hmm. however i would say and i think this is because we've both not seen it as much but I, in a strange way i would say that prometheus is probably the more memorable film yeah for all its faults because mm -hmm. i think just because some of the elements in this are a little bit on the generic side and because of the way they have to handle the uh, the alien that it does maybe slightly override it doesn't make it stand out enough yeah maybe how it should do but even so, I think just as a piece of filmmaking, it is um, a much stronger piece of work than, than its predecessor. I mean, I agree. I think this is a step up in a great many ways. I do feel like it's missing that eventness, that big picture feel that Prometheus does have. But what it lacks in that, it brings in spades to its primary antagonist and especially Walter as well. Walter and David having this um, playoff against each other. And all of the subtext that it brings with, with those characters, I think, takes the Alien series in a new direction, even if some of its other elements do feel more stuck in this series. Mm. And it is a film that for two acts of, at least, I absolutely adore. I love its bleakness. I, once again, I love its the, like the, the biblical feel of some of its shots. And I appreciate its queerness as well. It feels like it's a part of some sort of a queer cinema thing going on at the moment as well. <laughs> the other thing that it reminds me of in that way is like Hannibal, the TV series, <laughs> in terms of their playoff. 
I think it's also as well, it feels a bit more true to the original Alien in, in that kind of um, like perverted sexualization of things and like that yes. melding of, I mean, because it's not, I wouldn't even describe it as a queer film. It's like, it's like, it's, it's gone into that giganess. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's gone into that giganess. It's, I think you're absolutely right because the Alien itself, it stands as like this assault on sexuality anyway, yeah. because its whole essence essentially strips you of any sense of gender or anything yeah. like that because to everybody, you are female to the Alien. You are a host. Yeah. No manhood in the room is bigger than the Alien itself. Yeah. And I love that kind of uh, sexual threat that comes with the Alien series. And I think this is this what this film taps into that Prometheus absolutely lacks yeah. is that icky and I guess you're right. Yeah. I guess it's not so much the queerness. That's more of a, a David thing. I was just going to say that because we were talking about the synthetics before, they are themselves genderless. Even yeah. though they look like men, they are not men. Yeah, yeah. But even David himself is presented as being a bisexual threat more so than just simply yeah. a, a, a gay robot threat. But yeah, <laughs> gay I, robots. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I really do hope they get to make Gay Robots 3. Yeah. I would really like to see that film. Uh, but I not. mean, it, it's strange that in the last couple of weeks it seems to have come up again in terms of uh, on the radar. So, yeah. uh, who knows? And we were talking about last night about uh, Ridley Scott doing a, another film for Disney. Yeah, perhaps to keep them sweet. <laughs> you, know, you never know what Ridley Scott's doing. I mean, I can imagine him doing unfathomable sexual acts <laughs> to get his films made. Oh my gosh, that's not an image I wanted to have it stuck in my head today. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he's very user-friendly with the studios, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Very user-friendly. Oh, wink, yeah. wink. <laughs> okay. <laughs> with, that, with, his, with his eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not just a cigar he has in his mouth. Oh no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think that's the uh, I think that's <laughs> yeah. the place where we're going to leave this alien totally. uh, episode totally. today. So what is actually next on our list? I've actually forgotten. Oh Jesus, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Two seconds. It is drum roll. Oh, actually this this leads on very smoothly considering we've just been talking about him. The next episode is the Abyss. Oh wonderful. Oh yes, yeah, so there we go. That is our Sieg through to James Cameron. So our next episode in the series, we're going to be delving deep into the waters of James Cameron's abyss. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> His dirty dick. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to be plunging into Cameron's abyss. There we yeah. are. So join <laughs> us next week when you'll hear more of this from me. And me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.